one of the tensions that I feel every single day is this idea of working toward equity by necessity because we're working within existing systems that are so built up while wanting for liberation. For me, equity is about having a fair shot within an existing system. It's a critically important thing because we can't wipe the slate clean. We are all operating in existing systems. And so as much as we, I would love to wave a magic wand and say, let's just have a do-over, Unfortunately, the system exists, but also so do all of our habits and structures, and we are breathing the very same toxic air all the time. But doing that while also trying to redefine what would it look like if we could wave a magic wand, if we could start over, what would liberation look like outside of the confines and constraints of existing systems that are still anchored in the same mess? That is a tension for me every single day. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and that was the voice of Siomara Padamsi, founder and CEO of Promise 54. This episode is a recording of a Den Talk at the Gates Foundation Network for School Improvement Fall 2022 Community of Practice event in San Diego. If the term Den Talk is new to you, it's basically a cross between a traditional panel discussion and eavesdropping on a really interesting conversation happening at the next table in a cafe. This particular conversation takes place between Siomara, who you just heard, and Adelric McCain, Senior Director of Transformation and Impact with the Network for College Success, and is moderated by Michelle Sadrina Pledger. Siomara and Adelric have a wealth of experience and insight between them, and we are so excited to share this episode with you. So welcome. My name is Dr. Michelle Sadrina Pledger, and you are at a DIN talk called Weaving Equity Work and Improvement Work. And we are here with Siomara Padamsi from Promise 54 and Adelic McCain from Network for College Success. Now the way, yes, let's clap for that. <laughs> so just in case you've never come to a DIN talk, the way it works is they're going to have an intimate conversation with each other that we are just observing like creepers. We're just listening in on their conversation. So they may not be looking directly at you like in a panel formation. They're talking to each other. We're getting to listen in and learn as well. And then there's gonna be a time about 25 minutes in or so, I'll interrupt their conversation and you'll be like, oh, I wanna hear that last point. And then we'll let them finish that sentence. And then we're gonna turn it over to Q&A from the audience, right? And so you'll get to ask both of them questions. We do ask that they're actual questions. Cause you know how sometimes people get a mic and they're like, like the, me, like they just wanna talk and it's not really a question. They just wanna share their thoughts about something. Um, in this situation, we do want an actual question. And then the speakers are gonna try to be as efficient as they can and economize their words so we can get to as many of your questions as possible. And then the last five minutes, I'll invite them to share their closing thoughts with you. So they'll have about two and a half minutes each to do that. And we have opposite of Vegas rules here. So what happens in the den, we don't want it to stay here. We want that learning <laughs> to go as far and wide and be supportive of your context and all of the work that you do. All right, let's let the intimate conversation begin. Well, hello. Hello, Zima. How are you? So we just met. We should probably start with some intros. <laughs> let's do that. Let's do that. You want me to go first? Please, please, please. All right. Well, I'm super excited to meet you. I'm very excited for this conversation wherever it goes. Um, I'm Siomara, my pronouns are she and her. And I guess some important things to know about me are, um, I'm a descendant of the indigenous Taino people of the Caribbean. Um, I uh, identify in lots of ways, uh, many of them very, very important to me. I identify as a cisgender, able-bodied woman. I identify as a mom. Um, as a wife, I identify as queer, Latina, also multi-ethnic. Um, my parents both grew up low income by US standards. My mom's Puerto Rican and Cuban from the South Bronx, proud New York Rican woman. Um, and my father is Muslim Indian from Bombay. And he was first gen immigrant to the United States at 18 alone. And um, they met in college. They were first, first generation, both of them. Uh, they actually met at Brandeis University, which is a Jewish college in Boston. They were both part of the diversity efforts. So my mom was in the domestic arm, my father the international, and they stuck together like glue. And they hit it off. They fell madly in love. And together, through education, through their support and love of one another, they broke the intergenerational cycle of poverty for our family. They fell in love with education as a way to define their own life prospects and ended up each getting their masters, each getting their PhDs. And by the time I came along, we were comfortably middle class. 
my house was full of spices uh, from all around the world and different rhythms and language and religion and countries of origin and really learning and seeing about each other and all those differences and valuing and affirming and uh, loving each other through that. Like that was their definition of, uh, of love um, for, their, for, their, for themselves as a couple. And it's the environment where I grew up with my big sister and it was beautiful and it was full and it was loud. Um, and it was inside my house. So every time I left my house in the morning, um, I was surrounded by whiteness. I was surrounded by white kids and white adults because my parents had moved to a um, middle-class neighborhood that was white, all white, not largely white, it was all white. And so every time I left my house in the morning as a child, I was the only brown child around. And that's true for my schools and my social environment. And so I learned super, super, super early um, about what white dominant culture looks like and what it means to protect white comfort and how to read a room and navigate an environment and figure out what is expected of me and how should I, how should I move and um, in order to be seen as enough and valid and worthwhile and smart. And I built those skills super early and used them all the way through school and ultimately ended up doing social justice work because of being super passionate about needing to be in a world that is different. Um, understanding the racialized dynamics of our society, but wanting to change the realities for the future uh, to one of equity and liberation and joy and humanity. Um, and so I went into social justice work and I found myself surrounded by white supremacy culture. And so I spent 20 plus years in as a queer brown woman in social justice organizations working for equity in this country, primarily education, and still very much using all my skills around navigating white supremacy culture. And now, um, about eight years ago, I kind of broke off from that in an effort to build a different kind of way. So I'm now the CEO and founder of Promise 54, which is a national nonprofit uh, working to help support organizations doing social justice work to create internal environments where their people can thrive, bring all of that, all of what's really them be whole, and in so doing, thrive and do better work for our communities and for our kids and for our families and for our country, but also just because we all deserve it. So that's a little bit about me. Thank you, that was a gift, yeah. thank you My so pleasure. much. <clears throat> um, so I'm, I'm Del, um, we have a connection in that um, I was born in Boston mm -hmm. and um, uh, my family is from the East Coast, um, all up and down the East Coast. So my mother's side of the family is from rural Virginia. Okay. And um, she grew up uh, with my father, but my father was actually from New Jersey and moved down to Virginia. Um, uh, they both met at Virginia State University. My mom grew up rural, poor. Um, my dad grew up in seemingly at the time for, for, for black, black middle class. My maternal or sorry, my paternal grandmother, um, actually got an advanced degree uh, in the 50s. She's a black woman who uh, did psychology. She was a psychologist, school psychologist for all of Petersburg, Virginia. Wow. So education in, in my, my family has been forefront. Um, but both of them growing up in the Jim Crow South informed how they raised me, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, born in Boston, my dad has a job with Honeywell which then moved into the headquarters in Minnesota in 1981. Mm. So I went from Boston, which was every single group of people. You talk about the spices. I remember as a child <laughs> walking out in the summertime with my mom and, and out of people's houses, you just smelled just different flavors, mm. right? And then I moved to the whitest place on the earth, right? I mean, people know people think like Oregon is, but at the time, Minnesota. there was no black families on our block and in our neighborhood when we first moved there. Um, and immediately, I was introduced to the, 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 the virulent hate of, of, of white supremacy and white culture just by, like I remember distinctly, um, my mom pulling into a, a Cub Foods, um, which is a, a, a supermarket, um, parking spot, and unbeknownst to her, she maybe took someone's spot, but the guy took a point off to say, Call, got out his car and called my mom the N-word and, and bitch. And I'm six and taking this all in. I'm like, this is nowhere near what I experienced in Boston, even though Boston has its own racism, right? But you have your neighborhoods and your pockets and, and you can 
be with your own people felt like such isolation. That was my schooling uh, pretty much growing up. I mean, mind you, um, more people of color started coming into um, uh, the school systems. Um, I also need to note that I didn't, uh, I started off in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which was more diverse, but my mom moved us out to Bloomington, Minnesota. And I don't know if, if you know anything about uh, 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 Minnesota. At that time, again, it was very homogeneous. I didn't have a black teacher ever. I had a black coach, um, and I hated school. Um, I did it because my family valued it so much, and my mom's single premise is like, don't do anything to embarrass us. So <laughs> that's why I did school. Um, but I did everything to avoid doing school the traditional way. So I, I skipped, um, and instead of reading Shakespeare, I was reading Derek Bell's Face at the Bottom, Faces at the Bottom of the Well at the pool hall, right? Like while we're at the pool hall. Um, but I came back for tests mm -hmm. so that I could stay eligible because my worth at my school was only how fast I could run around a track or how much I could kick a ball, right? So I got into education early. So I, I, it was actually my junior year, it was a teacher um, who saw me for once. It was a, a, a white uh, teacher. His name is Kent Pakel, and he used to be the president of uh, Search Institute um, that does a lot of work around developmental relationships. And it's just funny that he, as my 11th grade teacher, changed my whole trajectory about what I was thinking about with education. I was ready just to graduate from high school and be done. He's like, no, you're going to college. I, I, you, I just can't see it. And he said, and I, need, I want you to go to Morehouse, right? And at the time, I wasn't even thinking about Morehouse College. I wasn't even thinking. But this guy, he saw me and through his support, ended up uh, uh, being able to attend Morehouse, which also just shaped my worldview uh, significantly, especially coming from Minnesota. And I'm like, I want to do what that guy does. I want to touch young folks in a way that actually you can build relationships and it actually changes the, 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 their, their thinking and their worldview. Mm -hmm. And um, so very eager. Uh, so I, even in 11th grade summer, I took some, um, um, I got into a program where we were able to do summer school with, with younger folks or whatever. So I, I, I was all out into education. When I got there freshman year at Morehouse, I knew I was going to do education even though they didn't have an ed department. Um, and so I, I, I studied that course and, and I finally got into my classroom and I knew my why. I knew my why. So in about three years into teaching, I had the opportunity to um, be in a program, it was critical friends group training, and it was with uh, Greg Peters and um, uh, was a trainer and uh, Camilla uh, Green. And the only reason why I'm naming not dropping is because these folks truly really changed my mm -hmm. life. What they got me to understand is like, oh my God, I've been doing my baby so much harm in my classroom for the past three years because I'm sitting there pushing the master's crap. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I really, like, it hit me like a ton of bricks how much disservice I had done for those three years. Luckily, I've been trying to dedicate my life in education, even though I'm out of the classroom, to interrupting that way of being in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And um, now as a uh, senior director of transformation and impact, at Network for College Success, that's, I, I, I'm no longer in the classroom, but I, I'm trying to expand our impact so that we are not only just interrupting, but actually transforming the way that we do school, mm -hmm. right? Because it's just not working, so mm -hmm. that's me. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all Thank that. You. I love how you talk about some of the formative like moments, interactions, relationships that just, it sounds like opened up your thinking and your world and how some of those go way back. Um, I remember, I, it's, it's striking to hear you talk about your early education, and I, I also had uh, all white teachers through all of my, um, you know, all the way up through 12th grade, with the exception of one year, which was first grade. And I tell you, I'm 48 years old, and I remember this, which was the one black or brown teacher I ever had, which was first grade, Mrs. Lee. I don't remember much about being in first grade, but I remember sitting in a circle, and just, I just remember wanting to soak her in. It was like, I don't know what I'm experiencing, but it's different, and it feels like home in a way that I am not used to. It feels like I can like let down my guard and just be, be you know, absorbing, and I just remember wanting to soak her in. Um, I, don't, I don't remember much else, but Mrs. Lee, I will never forget Mrs. Lee, my first grade teacher, um, and I love how you talk about... Uh, when, when you knew and how you knew so early and then you went to Morehouse knowing you wanted to do education and I think um, 
I didn't know I wanted to do education. I had no idea I would end up in the field of education. Um, but I think I can like, I can retrofit the steps. You know, there was a moment in my middle school where um, despite, I also hated school. I hated school because I didn't belong anywhere and I hated school because it was, it never came easy. I had to work really hard and it was like the double education of the education and then also trying to navigate the system um, all the time and it was exhausting and I hated that. And so um, I would be, I was in honors classes uh, in, the, in the tracked system that was very, you know, hardcore in my middle school and despite that, when it came time to figure out kind of like what classes are we putting kids into for high school, um, they were channeling me into the basic of three paths. Um, and I remember that moment and I remember sitting in a guidance counselor's office and I remember being like, I don't entirely understand what's happening, but something feels off. I remember when I went home and I remember the rage in my house and I remember my parents literally dropping, dropping everything and having the privilege to do so and marching down to that school and not leaving the school until they changed what was going to happen, which changed the trajectory of my entire life. Um, so that was probably one of the first moments where I realized um, there's a, there's a, there's a path for me and there is a massive amount of privilege in the fact that I have parents who can navigate this system to make that path available for me. And that's not a privilege that I earned. It's a privilege I was born into. Um, and it's, it shouldn't be a privilege. It should just be a right. And so I think that was probably my first moment where I was like, huh, something has to, has to really fundamentally change. Yeah, I resonate with that <clears throat> hard, especially now as a parent. And, um, having a child in a school system that sees her but doesn't honor all of her brilliance. And, um, and that's the case for the majority of black children that attend this school and in, in the school system. And the fact that I have some educational chops and the fact that um, her mom, uh, uh, my partner is a uh, advocacy lawyer, uh, we're up in their cakes all the time, okay? And so, um, but I recognize that not everybody has that. And I know that even for me growing up, my mom was a strong advocate, but she worked three jobs just so that we could stay where, we needed, where she wanted us to stay at. So if you don't have that advocacy, if you don't have that, you, you could get caught up in the system. And that's, that, that's, that's the work that I'm, I'm trying to, like, you shouldn't have to have someone who's savvy, who has to navigate all that, just for educators, for, for, for educators to see and hear the brilliance of all children, specifically black and brown children. That's right, absolutely. And the toll that it takes on the entire family unit, right, to have to be advocating in that way, but then also for the child who has to witness these moments and these experiences, whether it's parking lots or classrooms, um, and constantly face that like dual pressure of how you have to navigate this world that doesn't, not just, not not feeling a sense of belonging in, but actually would prefer you not to be there. Like that was my experience. Like we would actually prefer for your presence to not be here. I remember a moment in my early middle school, there were maybe four other BIPOC, like any, any uh, students of color in the school and none of them were in any of my classes. And so we would stick together like glue, like my parents in college. Um, and I remember a moment my mother called the school, the principal answered something about navigating after school, whatever, who knows. And all I remember is the principal said, oh, the social butterfly is not around with this incredible, dripping, sarcastic, um, just uh, disdain. It was disdain for my uh, absolute, uh, you know, um, just the craziness that I would want to find any sort of connection or belonging with other black and brown students and have the audacity to cross the lines between the honors classes and the rest of what's going on in those schools to find any little morsel of belonging. Um, it's just, it takes such an incredible toll on the entire family unit and it's just, it's just the vestiges of, you know, 400 years of crazy. So how are you thinking in your approach to both interruption and transformation, like with your work? Like what, what does that look like for you uh, on a day-to-day? -day? And then what are some like the aspirational kind of goals with that work? Yeah. I mean, for me, my like whole kind of mind frame, mind, mindset, my whole frame is that this entire country was founded on this fundamental underlying paradigm of racialized paradigm of uh, supremacy. And it, it's, um, 
it's so deeply baked into absolutely everything from structures and systems to interactions and relationships and, you know, from micro, micro moments. And I am deeply grateful to be living in a time where, you know, now it has reached mass vernacular to talk about things like anti-racism, to realize that, you know, ongoing incredible violence is, you know, happening every single day, um, all the time around us, based in that exact same thinking um, 400 plus years later. I am, I'm grateful about the idea of we have to like spot and interrupt racism and break it down and, and um, you know, pull it apart. But where I find myself still uh, craving or lacking in an answer is, and replace it with what? because I have never lived in a society based in any other paradigm, nor have my parents or their parents or their parents before them. And so where I find myself spending a lot of my intellectual energy and emotional energy and work um, is in thinking about what is a different paradigm, like what could actually replace white supremacy as an underlying paradigm for everything. Um, and so for me, I have come to this and I'm sort of thinking through this idea around uh, what I call radical humanity as an alternate paradigm. Like, so we, we walk this anti-racist path, we break down racism as a fundamental underlying paradigm. We need to replace it with something. And so I think about like, what is the, what is the crux of white supremacy? And it is this idea of white people being more than and anyone else not being enough. And I think, well, that just strips away our humanity in such deep and profound and fundamental base ways. And so what if we instead were to actually center our humanity in all of its um, nuance and complexity and, um, and beauty and all the spices and all the smells. Um, and what if our relationships and our systems and our structures, our schools, our organizations were actually anchored in that, in seeing each other as full humans, in starting from a place of we're enough because we are the end. Not because of our title or our networks or our organizational accomplishments or our whatever. It's all based in the same crap. And so how about if we just strip it all away and just see each other as full humans who are enough because, just because we are humans, who are, are brilliant. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, a lot of my work is around how do you take that idea and implant it at the base of a relationship or a structure or a system or a practice and then live that out and try to figure out what does it look like to actually be and live in a way that is anchored in a fundamentally different paradigm around the fullness of whole humanity and enoughness for all of us. So that's maybe a little meta, but. Yeah. I love it, I love it. I'm <clears throat> totally picking up what you're putting down and um, I like radical humanity. Uh, that's why I'm not even really um, interested in having conversations or in, in, in being um, in work around equity. I feel like even now, because of the, um, let's just name it for what it is, the bastardization of that term at this particular Absolutely. point, right? Has been, it's been, it's been whitewashed and it centers whiteness still, right? Exactly. To me, liberation is really the key. And I really like what you're saying as far as thinking about things that have not existed in the way, because if we go back to what has been prior to, all we're going to have and come back to is white supremacy structures and white supremacy uh, ways of being. So I really appreciate this, this foundation of it being going back to humanity, which, let's name it, hegemony has also separated white people from humanity as well. This Absolutely. system has uh, really separated everybody from that idea of thriving and being joyful. Um, I think that can we imagine schools where young people are extremely happy to be there because their whole identity is not only just validated, but it's uplifted as being essential to our fabric of our community. And I think that that's the piece that I'm finding right now is the root of, hege uh, of hegemonic ways of being is that individualism that I have to over top you come over and instead of like, we all make it. And that's one thing that I, I, I hold so strongly to a, a, with my, my experience at Morehouse College. Your success wasn't measured by you. Mm -hmm. They charged you as the hidden curriculum, and it's actually pretty explicit. You need to make sure that seven brothers that just look like you mm -hmm. have a similar experience and access to it, then you're successful. Mm -hmm. You're not successful just on your own. Mm -hmm. And so how do we create communities that actually see that if any of our kids are suffering, then we have failed. We are all failing. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely, I love that. And one of the ways in which, one of the tensions that I feel every single day is this idea of uh, working toward equity by necessity because we're working within existing systems that are so built up um, while wanting for liberation. And for me, the difference between those two things is like, if we, if we strip away the bastardization of the term equity, I think was how you put it, which I love and agree with, um, and get down to the core of it. For me, equity is about having a fair shot within an existing system. It's a critically important thing because we can't wipe the slate clean. We are all operating in existing systems. And so as much as we, I would love to wave a magic wand and say, let's just have a do-over, Unfortunately, the systems exist, but also so do all of our habits and structures, and we are breathing the very same toxic air all the time. So there's no magic wand. We can't start over. So we have to make changes within existing systems, which to me is the work for equity at the core. How do we make sure that all of us have a fair shot within existing systems, but doing that while also trying to redefine what would it look like if we could wave a magic wand, if we could start over, what would liberation look like outside of the confines and constraints of existing systems that are still anchored in the same mess, um, that is a tension for me every single day. And I think I spend a lot of my days uh, helping um, myself, my team, and mostly all the different leaders that we work with in organizations across the country think about equity, creating fairness within existing structures and systems, but trying to help push people a little bit further into this idea of like, but what could it look like if actually the system were different? Because what I find is there are usually pockets and places where if we push ourselves, we can actually redefine in a way that is not anchored in the current system. And sometimes it's just as simple as like my own personal liberation as an individual and a human and a leader. So I can work toward equity, but in, in, my, in my structures and systems around me, but I'm gonna hold myself toward my own personal liberation, which is way beyond that for me. And the same with the team members that I work with. And, um, and so I, I find that there's usually pockets where we can actually redefine, but it requires that kind of double consciousness all the time. Yep. I mean, the good news is a life full of living double consciousness builds you some skills. Yep, yep, yep. exactly, exactly. Uh, and um, one distinction that I had to make early on that I wasn't understanding um, at first when trying to engage in this work in meaningful and intentional ways, um, and, and, and I know that in our topic, we're kind of supposed to be melding in some uh, improvement science, but this is one thing that's kind of interesting here, right? Um, distinguishing between the discourse or discursive space that you're entering the work in, right? Um, I'm, I was reminded early on when, when I got that big thud on the head that you're doing this education classroom thing all wrong, right, uh, for your black and brown kids. Um, I was introduced to this article, uh, Eubanks Parish article that was written about the deseg of um, Rockford, Illinois schools, right? And they talked about discourse one and discourse two. Discourse one talks about change but actually maintains status quo, yes. whereas discourse two gets to the actual heart of the matter and actually changes things, right? And what I'm finding is, is that many of us who are having conversations about equity and then saying for improvement science, we're saying we're improving, mm -hmm. and we might improve those test scores. Mm -hmm. But at the soul and spirit of the black and brown kid, are you doing it, that's still maintaining status quo. Right. And you're still talking about change and you're right. seeing quote unquote improvement in scores, but black and brown babies, like blood is on the ground. They, they are, they are they're, they're, they're hurting in the school system, right? So my goal now is to make sure that when we're entering into this work, making sure we're checking where the disc discursive level is and making sure that we are not even just aspirational, we have to touch into discourse too and get to the root causes if we're gonna actually change anything. Yeah. And speaking so. of discourse, it is now time to, um, let's thank that preamble, that conversation, let's just first celebrate that. Um, and we're gonna keep the party going. And so if you have a question, please raise your hand. And yes, it really is important for you to speak into the mic just because of the recording. So I know some of you maybe don't prefer it, but thank you so much for agreeing to use it. So, who wants to kick off? Kick us off. First, thank you. Second, if, you, if nothing were standing in your way, what might be your first step in order to see, right, uh, the truly liberated um, 
society, workplace, whichever context you want to put it in? Um, first step, world's mind. I'm mayor of the world. Because, you know, less bureaucracy when you're mayor, right? I don't care if you are an engineer. If you are entering into a school and you're an adult, you have to go through a journey of reflection, introspection, critical interrogation of your past so that you show up for those kids and not doing things to the kids in the building. And I don't care who you are, if you're an adult, and you're collecting a check, and you have access to healthcare because of you, all that stuff that you got going on, work that out before you go and talk to our kids, all right? Uh, because we're all carrying around a lot of hurt, and we bring that hurt into the classroom, and a lot of times that hurt gets taken out on black and brown kids in different ways. So if I, would, I would require that everybody goes through that first step of going through some process of personal transformation. I love that. I love that. And my thoughts were headed in a really similar direction, too. I was thinking um, the, place where, the place where there is very little that can actually stand in my way, um, in part because of work I've done and in part because of privileges that I have that are unearned, um, is like my own personal growth and journey. And so I, the thing that I have already done and am continuing to do and I hope will continue to do and for the rest of my life is be deeply engaged in my own personal journey to liberate myself. And that means to liberate my thinking, to liberate my past, and to think about what does liberation look like for my future. And that has involved like deep, as you say, reflection and introspection. It has involved hard interrogation of the things that I have done in my past and sometimes in my present to perpetuate white supremacy culture and that create harm and to take responsibility for those things and to um, uh, ask for or uh, for, forgive, forgive, well, really to, yeah, take responsibility and apologize for those things, um, to forgive myself for those things and to learn how to be in a different way. This has been like hours upon hours upon hours of work and therapy and coaching and, um, and I am like a fundamentally different person than I was five years ago, eight years ago, and certainly beyond before that. Um, I, have, I have language to be able to I have, I have the ability to spot when there are risk factors for me, like I'm gonna fall into old cycles right now. I have learned white supremacy culture, I can do white supremacy culture. I am an expert in white supremacy culture, as I think are all of us. Um, but I had now learned how to spot it in ways that are way closer to real time or in real time, and then I've built language to be able to articulate to myself what's happening, and I'm building the skill to be able to define a different way even when it requires me to just plain innovate it in the moment. Um, and my point in saying all this is not to be self-congratulatory. God knows I have plenty of work ahead. My point in saying this is to say that to me has been the biggest key toward being able to even imagine or envision a relationship, an interaction, or a world that could be based in something different. And therefore, the first thing I would absolutely go to as well is making it the case. Like, re uh, required has such a, <laughs> such a scary feel about it. But it would absolutely be a necessity to be a human on this earth, to be a person in this society, to go through that same sort of journey um, and I would, I would say that would be something that is, you know, built into our school curriculums, our professional curriculums. It's uh, an absolute necessity so that we can each, there's, there's no way to create a different way if we don't first learn the, uh, uh, have the kind of meta process to spot the original way. It's so baked into the fabric, right, that we just do it. Is that, is that when I'm thinking about it? So in order to do something different, I would say, yeah, start with that personal. Economy of words, I'm going to stop here. I just want to quickly shout out those. So if there's any hip hoppers in here, what you're talking about uh, um, just reminded me of uh, Black Star, uh, Most Deaf, and Talib Kweli. In their album insert, they have this thing where they have a, they, they, the guy's just talking. He's like, I'm so conditioned, my condition's conditioned. And that is what we're at right now. That's right. That's right. I really appreciate that. All right. Um, Zimmer, you, you mentioned. Um, 
not really knowing what the alternative is. And I think the, the, the backlash we're seeing right now is that a lot of folks think the alternative is to white supremacy is black and brown supremacy. And so that is such a, I'm a, you know, cage dog in a corner. I'm fighting like, if it's not, if it's not going to be me, if, if, you know, I don't want it to be you, if it's, if that's uh, at, you know, my expense. And so I, I would love to just sort of hear how you have conversations with people who are like, it's either two sides of a coin rather than I can have the coin sitting in the middle. <laughs> right. And, and what that, you know, I know we don't want to say equity, but what does, that look like or how do we have conversations where people don't automatically go to well because we did it for 400 years if i give that up you're going to do it to me for 400 years but we ain't like that so how do you have that conversation yeah absolutely um you have thoughts you want to start with or you want me to go, go ahead. okay okay you chime in um so for me at the the way i think about it is that this is why I use the word paradigm because it's like the it's the underlying ground like it's it's so deeply embedded in the core and for me what is the way that I would articulate what is the thing that was the fundamental underlying underlying paradigm 400 plus years ago and remains true today is it's two components clicked together it's supremacy as a concept connected to racialization and those two things have been pulled together. Now we can talk about in, we can talk about a different way to um, racialization, but if we don't actually also stop the supremacy, we're just recreating the same thing. It's just master's tools applied in a different way. It's not going to get us to a different outcome fundamentally as a society or as individuals. We have to actually break down the racialization and the supremacy itself. By the way, I'm not saying we don't need it. We don't see race, right? We're, we're like pretty far down a path. Um, this is not what I'm arguing for. But what I'm saying is if the supremacy concept is still core to the alternative we're trying to work, we are going to end up at a different iteration of the exact same outcome, which is why for me, it, it, we stop short as a society when we say anti-racism is the answer. Anti-racism is critical. Let's be clear but it can't be the end answer because we need something to replace it with because literally no humans alive today in this society have lived in a different way. And so we have nothing to base it on, which means we must innovate, which is part of, I talked a little bit about this yesterday for anyone who was with me in the room, but I, uh, it's a little bit of why I have, a, I have a bit of a trigger personally. I do a lot of coaching, I do a lot of consulting, and I have a little bit of a trigger around people saying like, show me the best practice. What's the org that's getting it right? Where do I go for the model of blah, 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 blah? I have, I have a hard time with those questions because it's looking backward. And anything we do to look backward is saying, show me how to do it right in a context that is wrong. That's, you're not, we're not gonna find the answer that way. That's not to say people aren't innovating and coming up with new thinking that we can learn from, like let's learn from each other. But, but if the fundamental frame is like, oh, I'm gonna figure it out by figuring out where's the best practice, and I'm gonna go emulate and do what that whole system is doing, like, if that existed, we would already have carved a path toward the future. We have to innovate. And so to me, it's, if supremacy is at the core, we end up at the same result. I, I would just add, um, I think that one of the most powerful steps towards liberation and, 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 and just engaging this work is to avoid binaries. Um, I think part of the control of white supremacy is to create binaries to say, if it's not this, then it has to be that, versus something that has never existed before, something that is new. And, you know, I always laugh when I think about, like, you know, um, I grew up, like I said, I grew up in Minnesota, and it was very, very white, and I was, I was like, it's not about us taking over. I gotta be honest with you, I just like, you ought to leave me alone. Let me just be, right? And so if we can just start there, right? Like, just finding spaces of joy, liberatory spaces where we can be our full selves, that's not about supremacy. That's just about being a human right. like, and wanting to thrive, right? And so if we can get to avoiding the binaries and saying, like, free your mind. It's not, it has to be this or that. It can be something we've never thought about before. And let's create spaces of joy. That's how I would like to combat that. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to stay here for one moment. I'm so sorry. Uh, you talked Are we sorry? about yeah. You talked about uh, the replacement being uh, radical humanity. So I just want to talk about like what is the basis of radical humanity and who gets a seat at the table to define that. Yeah. So my perspective, which is just mine, um, is that 
I think I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to reframe it just a little bit. You keep me honest if I don't answer your question. Um, the, the thing about this conversation and um, a risk here is because we're in a, such a macro level system that's so deeply entrenched for such a long time period in one underlying paradigm, it, I think it's natural to think about, okay, well, if we're going to create an alternative, then it needs to be baked at that same level. The alternative needs to be a macro-level system solution that's based in a fundamentally different paradigm, and that's very overwhelming. My perspective is that the path to this alternative paradigm about radical humanity actually happens through something that I call micro-activism. What I mean by that is, in any given day, as humans walking through the world, we have... I don't know, thousands, millions of micro moments with other humans. And we get to actually choose how we interact in those micro moments. And if we choose a way that is anchored in liberation or anchored in this idea of, of recognizing and appreciating and being with the radical beauty that is our humanity just from being, well then we can actually in that micro moment create a different reality. And if we do enough of these micro moments in a given hour or day or year or one person's experience, they build up to a different ultimate way. So to me, as opposed to backward mapping to like, okay, let's create another different alternate massive system paradigm and figure out who gets a seat at the table to define it and structure it, et cetera. I instead say, let's rewind all the way back to this moment and figure out what is a different interaction in this very moment in this micro moment, which means we all get a seat at the table because we're all players. We're all, we're all activists in either continuing white supremacy culture or creating an alternative. Either way, we're doing, we're doing something. So we, there's, no, there's no opportunity to do neither of those things. So if I choose in the micro moment to think about what is a way in which I can see and value you in your full humanity and convey that through our interaction, non-verbally or verbally, well then I have recreated a reality in just this micro moment right now. And then if I do that in the next moment and the next moment, every time I can, it will add up and build up and ultimately it will result in a different paradigm at a systems level. But to me, it makes more sense. It feels less overwhelming and more accessible, but also more real and true. If instead of backward mapping from a new macro level reality to like who gets to define what it is and gets a seat at the table, et cetera, that's familiar thinking to me, which automatically makes me have a little bit of alarm bells. And so um, I, ins I would instead say, for me, what feels right is backward, all, rewind all the way back to like, just in this interaction, in this moment, can I like do a thing or say a thing that's different? Can I demonstrate my vulnerability or bring my humanity or interrupt what might be expected in a moment anchored in white supremacy culture and instead anchor it in full humanity? And if I do that enough, if we all do that enough, it will build up to a different way. Did, I don't know if I spoke to your question, so you need to keep me honest. Other questions? <laughs> Other questions? <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you've become really good at noticing white supremacy culture and then doing something different. And that connects to what you just said about micro moments. Um, if you feel comfortable, I would love if you could share a story of a micro moment that felt really immense to you. We have a partnership, I'm gonna try to be as anonymous as possible. We have a partnership with a district in Texas, and if anybody knows what's happening in Texas, um, you don't talk about race. And matter of fact, when I was down there watching, I always when I'm traveling somewhere, I watch the news just to check the weather. And they actually had on the local news a black male principal being fired because of this idea of bringing in critical race theory. So don't talk about race, and we were actually doing a PD. And this is after we had um, a preconditions assessment where we did focal group, focus groups with the students, and the students were saying in the focus group, they don't see my racial identity, they don't talk about it, they don't honor it at all, all right? And so we're bringing in data, and what we do is we disaggregate data by race. That's what we're not, that's what we do. <laughs> don't ask us not to or don't work with us. But yet the folks who, especially the district folks, were kind of concerned about what this means. Because again, people are losing their jobs around this. And so I'm like having a lot of practice within working through and around the system, specifically around like school systems. Like, oh, 
you closed that door that I couldn't get out of. Now I'm going to try to find the other door that I can get out of. So instead of us putting this data all on the walls, I'm like, let's have a lunch conversation for those people who want to talk about the racial disparities within your data. We don't have to necessarily mention this to anybody. I'm just going to be here for lunch if you want to talk about it. Now, mind you, all of the black principals within this district were sitting at the table. Couple white principals um, and, and two Latinx principals, I remember distinctly. It wasn't everybody, but it was enough where in that conversation, they decided that they wanted to take up some change actions and, 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 and do that, like bring it back. And it was unbeknownst to anybody in the district. I'm like, it's your schools, do what you want to do, right? And so I felt like that was a moment where it didn't have to be big. We didn't have to put anything on Front Street. It was a small conversation that actually led to them changing something in their practice. So that, to me, is an effective professional development space versus not doing it and not talking about it. Yeah, all right, all right. We have time for one or two more questions, so. Can you, can you think of a micro-intervention or micro-activism that didn't go well and what you learned from that? I'm just trying to check, just like one. <laughs> I got them. I can share. Um, it's not quite as specific. I'm searching for like a specific story to tell you, which I don't have at the moment. But you got something? You want to go? Okay. Um, I can say I try to live this out in all of my interactions. And the work that my organization does is coaching, consulting, training. And so people aren't always ready for it. So there's a lot of times, I would say, where there are these micro moments where I try to, I try or our team tries to bring this sort of frame and it's like, ooh, no, you know, like forget it. And, and to, it's kind of like what you said a minute ago, or don't work with us, like it's okay. Like everybody's not ready. And to be honest with you, I would say like there was a massive uptick post summer of 2020, there was a massive uptick and people like knocking on the door being like, help us with our DEI and culture. And it, the difference between pre-summer 2020 and post was that first increase in volume. But the second is that pre-summer 2020, like literally I will tell you, it would take us on average four to six months of working with an organization and a leadership team to be able to utter the words white dominant culture. Forget white supremacy culture. So it was like post-2020, it would be like the web inquiry from the first point of contact is like, please help us on white supremacy culture. We need interruption immediately. The literacy popped up really fast, but the readiness didn't come with it. So because of that, we were in a lot, a much higher frequency of situations where we were bringing this kind of like, okay, let's redefine, let's create a different way in all the micro moments. And we were getting um, an uptick also in the like, woo, I want the outcome, but not the work. Like, is there any other way to the end besides through? And we're like, no friends, sorry, we got to go through. So it's not specific, but that's what's coming to mind. <clears throat> I was thinking about a, um, we uh, in summers, we do trainings uh, around uh, equity-based leadership. Um, but also, I do trainings um, in San Francisco with, with a group that's similar. And I remember um, having a, uh, we've moved from an affinity space to the, the general space, and I brought into um, the, the, the space something that somebody taught me, which is racial battle fatigue, right? And just being exhausted of just being a person of color, having to fight white supremacy culture every single day from your micro moments to the larger parts of your work and all of that. And I, you know, I talked about my exhaustion and I, I was saying that in terms, and I, and I knew better than this, in terms that was speaking for like almost, like I'm speaking for all black folks. And this black elder uh, was in our space in our training and, and she interrupted my behind so hardcore <laughs> and just basically, you don't speak for me. It's like, I am tired, but I would never let anybody know that I'm tired because I have to wake up and fight every day for my kids. And I thought that that was such a moment for me to actually hear that and to be humbled by that, right? Um, because I, I also take that strength, like still exhausted, but nevertheless, you don't have to let people know. And she's like, she kind of pulled me aside, especially don't let them know that you're tired. <laughs> All right. And this is one of them queens from Oakland, so you don't play. I was like, All right, you're right. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I could listen to y'all talk all day long. Um, we have time for you to have any closing words, final thoughts, calls to action, whatever you want for our group. And so we have about a minute and a half per person who would like to go first. I'm gonna set a timer too. I would just like for us to really interrogate what we're doing 
and in what's the ser in, in, in service of what? And I'm going back to that, looking at discourse one versus discourse two. And, and what I want to say is that our work can seemingly be like we're changing something and we're improving something. But if you strip the veneer a little bit, you'll understand and see that it's not for every student, specifically black and brown students. And I want, to, I, I want us to always think in the spirit of targeted universalism, right? Like, if we can address the needs of people who have been, who are old, communities that are old in educational debt because of the system and how it has been for decades upon decades, just beating communities down, right? If we can look and say our work is focused on improving the experience for this group, it will trickle up for, for everybody. So as we do our work and we engage in our work, I know sometimes it's easy for us to put our heads down and keep grinding away, but I really hope and want us to like stop for a second and interrogate, is this going to work for everybody? Is this gonna really work for uh, uh, black and brown community members in our, in our, in our uh, educational spaces? I think the, the closing thought on my mind is just this idea of, as you think about, as I think about the connection between creating a different way or a different future and like improvement science, I think about it, it fits together really nicely in the spirit of like, we need to create a different way which is going to require innovation. And so it feels very deeply connected. And, and it's like, I wanna highlight a both and. Yes, we need to, pilot things and we need to fail fast and we need to innovate and we need to try different ways because what we've been doing clearly doesn't work. That part is clear. But the both, the, the, the and here is always having a level of compassion and intentionality for on whose back, right? Because as we innovate and we try and we pilot and we fail fast, there are still consequences to the failures, even when the intention is progress or the intention is reaching just a fundamentally different paradigm. Um, so it's sort of like, a, it's a necessary path, but let's walk it responsibly and intentionally with the compassion that like, just like for 400 plus years, it's been on the backs disproportionately of black and brown people in this country. Uh, so too will the failures, the consequences and the burden of the work and the failures fall disproportionately to black and brown students and families and community members. Um, and so let's, let's do it, but let's not, let's not do it blindly. Let's do it with some, some real thought and compassion and care and intentionality for the both and in there. So. Ooh, wow. It is 11 o'clock. Let's thank both of our DIN speakers. Wow. Hightechai Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Huge thanks to Michelle Pledger, Siamara Padamsi, and Adelric McCain. This is part of a series of three episodes from the Gates Foundation Network for School Improvement Fall 2022 Community of Practice event. You can also find recordings of all the Den Talks from the event at the Hightechai Unboxed YouTube channel. There's a link to that in our show notes. Thanks for listening.